Welcome to the show. It's Friday, so that means I'm out, and it's also hashtag FOF, or F-O-F, Friends on Fridays. This Friday, we will broadcast John Zipper's week-to-week show. The program today is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. And now here's Week to Week with John Zipperer. I'm John Zipperer, the host of the Commonwealth Club's Week to Week Politics Program. You can find out more about Week to Week and all of the Commonwealth Club's many programs, including videos and audio, at CommonwealthClub.org. Now let's join this week's program. Good evening and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. You can find the Commonwealth Club on the internet at commonwealthclub.org. As Kimberly was kind enough to say, I'm Stacey Abrams. I'm the House Minority Leader for the Georgia General Assembly and State Representative from the 89th House District, in case you find yourself in Georgia. Uh, But I'm here today in San Francisco because I want to serve as your moderator for the program. Uh, This program is part of the Commonwealth Club's Good Lit series, underwritten by the Bernard Osher Foundation. And now it is my pleasure and my privilege to introduce today's speaker and special guest, Steve Phillips, civil rights attorney, senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, New York Times bestselling author of the book we're here to talk about today, Brown is the New White. You should clap for that. I say that because it has been my privilege to know Steve Actually, for five years, I met Steve right after I became the minority leader, and I had the audacity to get on a plane to go and meet this man that I'd heard about for many years. I asked him for a meeting. I walked into his office. He didn't know me. He had no reason to talk to me. I had a couple of friends call ahead and say that I wasn't a stalker, and he was kind enough to listen to me explain to him how I thought Georgia, the state of Georgia, the crimson state of Georgia, could turn blue. And unlike a number of people with whom I had that conversation, he did not laugh, Um, he did not scoff, he did not walk out of his office. Uh, He asked me really thoughtful questions and he did something more important, which was ask me how he could help. Uh, And that's why I think that Steve Phillips is a visionary on this topic. He is someone who five years ago understood the demographic changes that were coming to this country. And instead of Harkening back to the old way of thinking about things, he decided that he was not only going to identify the changes, but he was going to make sure that he could be the clarion who told America about what was coming. And it is my pleasure, therefore, to introduce Mr. Steve Phillips. So Steve, I I want to start with a softball question. How do we make sure Donald Trump doesn't become president? (laughs) Uh, We all vote. Next question. (laughs) Um, No, I think it's actually, uh, it's fascinating to watch the uh, misanalysis and misunderstanding of what's actually going on and that people are um, extrapolating out his success in the Republican primary to the country as a whole, which is not to say we should take him uh, lightly at all. Um, It's been fascinating also to watch the media begin to uh, legitimize him, right? I mean, people forget that right after he announced and he came out with the whole anti-Mexican comments that he was like 
a pariah, racist pariah, Macy's, all these other people cutting their ties from him. It's like, that's all forgotten now. And so that's going to continue, actually. The media is going to continue to legitimize him, lift him up, give him credibility. But what people don't realize is that, um, well, for one, I'm, I'm amused by how many Republicans are, like, genuinely perplexed around what actually happened and look at all these, you know, people who are, like, you know, xenophobic and responding to these messages. And I'm like... Who did they think was voting for them all these years, right? <laughs> and so there has been clearly 30 to 35 percent of the Republican base is uh, um, uncomfortable at best and hostile at worst to the demographic changes in this country, and they have never had a champion like Trump, a billionaire, a celebrity, somebody who brings credibility to those views and that viewpoint. So they came out in droves because they hadn't ever had anybody. Um, champion their views, but it's clearly a, a minority of the country, and so that's what gets uh, left out in, of this analysis. You can't just extrapolate his his success in the Republican Party, which is only you know half less than half of the country, and then only half of that to the entire electorate. But the way to beat him is that we have to turn out and vote, and then even these polls that you're seeing, and then some of these polls in uh, states that show it, the race being closer, like they're. Uh, Ohio, um, Pennsylvania, and I think it was Florida had to like, we're neck and neck. But in all of the models of those polls, the electorate is whiter than it was in 2012. So if people of color do not come out and vote in large numbers, then Trump can be competitive. But if we do vote and the progressives and Democrats do what we need to do to turn out a large enthusiastic uh, voting population of people of color, then we, not only will we win, but we have the opportunity, we, we, we should win, we should take back the Senate. There are seven seats held by Republicans in states that Obama won, and we have a chance to really deal a fundamental blow to not just the Republican Party, but to the type of politics which is rooted in racial resentment and fear. And so that's what the possibility is, but to make it a, uh, to get there, we have to turn out our vote and turn it out in large numbers. So how do you turn out voters of color? Well, you, communicate with them, you don't take them for granted, and you uh, try to work to inspire and mobilize them. So this is the challenge. And really, frankly, this was really what led me to write the book. Because first, I was like, I thought everybody knew all this stuff, right? That, you know, we had Obama, you know, ran twice, inspiring a candidate of color on top of the ticket, mobilized large numbers of people of color. Um, and he won, and then won again, which was even more significant as re-election, five million fewer voters, uh, five million fewer white voters, and still got re-elected. And so that was clear to me that that was the path to win, but it's not been uh, internalized in the progressive movement and the Democratic Party. They continue to chase the shrinking sector of the electorate, which is the white swing voter. And so people of color are not gonna vote if you don't talk to them, if you don't hire people from their communities to communicate with them, to organize them, to bring them out to vote, and, and to be able to mobilize to participate. Um, but when that is done, people can actually turn out. So Obama got uh, 200,000 more black votes in Ohio in 2012 than he did in 2008. They did that by having 700 full-time staff people on the ground. They're there a year ahead of time, working with churches, working with faith-based organizations, partnering with them on voter drives, building those types of relationships, having that presence in the community, and being able to turn those people out. But if we're just gonna run 30-second television ads targeting 
moderate white Republicans to tell them how bad Trump is, that's not gonna get people of color out to vote. And that's the strategic challenge that we have in this election. Most of the pundits who are acknowledging the demographic changes, their caveat is that they would acknowledge everything that you uh, articulate about the numbers, but they will say that the only reason Obama received those votes in 2008 and 2012 was because he was African-American. Uh, is it true that a white candidate at the top of the Democratic ticket can yield the same level of voters of color that Obama achieved? Uh, essentially, the answer is yes, if, again, you organize and, and speak to. So people of color, people of color did not just come out to vote for Obama just because he was black. And Obama was, he represented and spoke to and embodied the struggles of people of color who have been historically marginalized and excluded from the community. And so he was able to both speak that language substantively and symbolically, right? the whole, uh, yes, we can. Right? right after he says, yes, we can, in that first speech, he says it's words that were uh, whispered by slaves and abolitionists. And so talking the language that really the people who have been struggling for justice and equality, people struggling for justice and equality don't just want a black president. We're happy to have a black president. Um, but we also want to have economic equality. We want to have good schools. We want to have good housing, which I think is the vision for the, the country as a whole. And so those are the things that have to be lifted up and be able to put forward in terms of what is at stake in this, in this election, to move us closer towards economic equality, to have good schools for everybody, to complete the push for universal health care, to have a safer and healthier um, planet and neighborhoods. That agenda can and will speak to people if it's put forward um, in a compelling um, and convincing fashion. Well, staying on the, the topic, you spend a great deal of time and I think very thoughtful analysis of the policy issues that progressive leaders have to espouse, that campaigns have to talk about. But you lay out several policy options that the funders of these campaigns, if these policies are to be enacted, they would be the ones paying for it. You're asking billionaires to pay heavier taxes. You're asking uh, people who've benefited from the very system that you decry to dismantle that system. Why would they? Well, I will say two things. One is um, one of the fascinating parts about this election is that it, it was particularly fascinating that it's come after the um, Citizens United decision, where we just unleashed big money within to our political system. But the biggest beneficiary of that, this election, um, was Jeb Bush went around and raised $100 million, I still think illegally the way he did it, uh, but get $100 million from major donors and then got crushed by a guy sitting at home on Twitter, right? And so you have that reality. And then on the Democratic side, there has never been a progressive political force with this kind of funding power as what Bernie Sanders has unleashed within the country in $27 a person contribution. So first of all, I'm not convinced that it is necessarily just gonna be about the wealthy donors in terms of them being the ones that have to be one over to that. I do think there's something different. Most Democratic donors, most Democratic major donors don't give money for economic self-interest. If they would be Republicans. <laughs> and I mean, that's how kind of, that, that I think there is in fact something more altruistic, something more idealistic within those, uh, within the people from that standpoint. And so I think if we could uh, speak to that, 
to convince them around we could have a better society if they actually pay more and pay their fair share. It's interesting being able to do the, you know, take the time in the book to do the research. So one of the things that was most illuminating to me was what is possible by moving from a discussion around income inequality to wealth inequality. And that the top 1% in the country, people making 13, who have $13 million in assets, collectively have $26 trillion in assets. So that if we could actually institute a wealth tax, not just on income, but tax that wealth at 2%, that's $500 billion a year. Think tanks have calculated what it would take to lift everybody out of poverty, and it's about $270 billion. So we could end poverty just by asking the top 1% and nobody else to pay 2% of that wealth tax, and the historic return on the stock market oh, since 28 is 10%. So we're not even saying that we're gonna make them poorer, just saying get richer a little slower, and we could actually end poverty. And I do think that that's the kind of thing that people could um, respond to in terms of the public policy debate. Do you think that Hillary Clinton gets that message? Uh, I emailed someone for people with that section of my book. <laughs> um, uh, I don't think, either, I mean, I don't know, uh, not at the moment. And then I think, you know, I even think that the extent that Bernie talks about inequality, that it's mainly income inequality. And so I think that hoping that we can push him to lift up the issue around wealth inequality more. Um, so we're not there yet. Um, but I do think that the, it's, we're further along in a progressive spectrum around talking about inequality than we have been historically. And I think that there are, and actually the reason, I'm not kidding, I did email some of Hillary's uh, people that I know. The reason I did is because she actually did give us, I thought it was a very good speech about um, addressing racial inequality in the, in the problems. And she was talking about a $125 billion plan and program to be able to address racial inequalities in our society, which I think is the right problem to be focusing in on. So I was trying to point them to wealth inequality as a potential solution to fund that type of a program. Uh, staying on that lines, and I'm taking a few of the questions from the audience. Uh, that first question uh, regarding Re Secretary Clinton was from the audience. And another one is how effective has President Obama been in achieving the racial equity goals that you, you've described? We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side as a unified team of the best fertility specialists guided by the highest ethical standards Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. That's a good, it's a complicated question. And so, um, for one, I don't think we, any, I don't think we should minimize, and I don't think we have sufficiently appreciated, and we may not be able to appreciate for a decade or so, the cultural, sociological, psychological impact of having this president and this first family in the White House for eight years. What it means for all of the children within this country who have grown up to see this man and this first family in the White House is incalculable. And so that's a very significant piece of the social change piece that doesn't get um, credited enough. Um, another thing that doesn't get credited enough is um, he put the first Latina on the Supreme Court. 
Right. And so that's never been, you know, so the other things he's done, which have been significant, um, that have not been appreciated. Right. So I think that there's that. Um, I do wish they had gone faster, harder when they first went in, in 2009. I think there, I feel there was too much effort to uh, try to, you know, work across the aisle and win over Republicans and try to be able to be reasonable with people who were not, who were not reasonable. And we could have done more. We could have moved healthcare quicker. We could have uh, passed immigration uh, reform if we had gone more aggressively um, in, in 2009. So that, I think, is the, the primary disappointment. But I think since his reelection, he's actually been much more aggressive and bold in trying to move in these different directions. Even you know, the recent thing, like in the past couple of days, right, overtime pay. I mean, they're doing a lot of things now that are moving us more rapidly in the direction of equality. Um, so I think that that's um, all to the good. Well, you founded the first super PAC to support President Obama's 2008 election, and you've been instrumental in supporting groups across the country who have been in bits and pieces and not necessarily always with the same mindset, been trying to live out the ethos of brown is the new white. Can you talk a little bit about those programs that you've been the most impressed by? Uh, you spoke about what uh, President Obama has accomplished in recent years, but talk a little bit about how both the work that you've been doing and certainly his leadership, how that has influenced those community groups and those states that are starting to really organize and galvanize these communities of color. Um. One of those states is Georgia. (laughs) So people don't appreciate that Obama lost Georgia in 2008 by 250,000 votes without contesting it. And it's a state that has 900,000 eligible non-voting people of color. Um, And uh, and it's not, you know, uh, uh, this is genuine, genuine, sincere. I mean, Stacey organized and ran the New Georgia Project. It's registered tens of thousands of African-American voters um, in 2014. Um, which had not been done before. And so that whole uh, framework, which is really, I mean, I came into politics with the Rainbow Coalition. Jesse Jackson used to talk about um, David versus Goliath, but there are all these rocks lying around. And he referenced that the rocks lying around were the eligible non-voting people of color. Um, Texas has four million eligible non-voting people of color in a state where Democrats lose by 600,000 to 900,000 votes. So groups like Texas Texas Organizing Project um, do a lot of the underground work. And they did the underground work to turn out the vote in Houston that actually elected the African-American mayor of Houston. So that's an an example of that type of work. Um, You know, I've been happy to support and try to get off the ground an effort um, called Inclusive, which is a, a talent bank for people of color to be able to place them in different campaigns so that people keep saying, well, we can't find anybody. We're like, well, they're right here, right? And so um, so these are some of the things we've been trying to actually um, identify and move forward. Um, but sadly, it's not sufficiently invested in and not a high enough priority yet for the overall um, progressive movement. But the talent is there. The leadership is there. We just need more investment to, in those right leaders doing that kind of work. Well, you talk about uh, Ambassador Andy Young's uh, very famous comment about smart-ass white boys. Uh, And uh, I always like being able to say that. (laughs) Talk to me about the programs that you see those organizations and those groups trying to implement that are 
well-intentioned but wrong-headed. Um, so for the record, if I say fewer smart-ass white boys, <laughs> and footnote five of chapter five okay. of my book does say that some, uh, some of my best friends are white guys. So yeah. I just want to be <laughs> on the record about that. Um, but, I mean, unfortunately, we're seeing it right now in this election that the strategies and the plans that are being implemented in terms of how to defeat Trump are primarily designed to be able to, to focus in on and change the minds of and influence moderate to conservative whites. And so there, and what's in, one of the things that's fascinating that people do not at all appreciate um, in terms of this political analysis is that there just are not that many swing voters left. And that there was a significant study that looked at the voting survey data f for the past 60 years. And in the swing voters are at an all-time low. And it's 5% of the entire electorate, which is about 6 million people from the uh, 2012 election. There are 7.6 million newly eligible people of color since 2012. There are 26 million eligible non-voting people of color in 2012. So which, where are you going to focus your time, energy, and resources? And this is actually back to your earlier point about kind of non-person of color attract voters of color. 79% of people of color have voted Democratic since 1976 on average. So yes, people of color will vote in that direction. So where do you put your time, energy, and resources? But most of the people running Democratic and progressive politics right now are white, almost exclusively. I mean, in a party that is 46% people of color, if not more. 46% of Obama's voters are people of color. And yet almost all the people controlling the large institutions, the large organizations, and the large budgets in this election are white. And so I have, have taken to referring to it as a near apartheid situation we have in the progressive movement. And so the plans that have been laid, even public, publicly disclosed around the independent side and the different programs people are gonna be doing and the different super PACs, they, the budgets add up to around $200 million. The vast majority of that is this, are negative ads about how Trump is a bad guy, which is just, again, designed to change the minds of the white swing voters where that money could be put into communities, hiring staff people, organizing people of color to make sure we turn out in large numbers. So the mindset, and this is exactly what Andy Young was talking about, that he was trying to tell Mondale's people the benefit of his experience, having worked with Dr. King, having done voter mobilization, had got elected to Congress himself through a voter mobilization of African-American programs, that that's where the priority and the resources should go. But they were, you know, uh, smart-ass consultants who were like, no, we're going to run these TV ads. And that's what they did, and, that, and then they lost. 30 years later, we're still running these TV ads. Um, I'm going to take a few questions that are all Trump related. I was intending not to talk about him anymore after the beginning, but um, we all get pulled into his wake. So, so one conversation that's continued to happen about Donald Trump is that there is this quiet group of Trump supporters that we're not aware of. Uh, Trump uh, likes to trumpet his uh, ability to bring in new voters, new Democrats, new independents, although there was a, a very interesting Politico analysis yesterday that showed that he actually has not done any of those things, that really the core of his, his base has been 
Republican voters who simply don't vote in primaries very often. So he did animate voters, but these are not voters who necessarily change the electorate. However, the question from the audience is, do you feel that Trump has a reverse Bradley effect uh, where voters aren't telling pollsters that they're voting for him but will? That's a good question. I, I do think the election is going to be closer than people appreciate. But I think partly it's because um, the combination of things we've already talked about. One is that I think that the media is going to legitimize him and, and whitewash all his past behavior. And so they're going to make him seem legitimate. And they're not. And I was thinking, about while I was watching this you know, earlier today, I was like, how far do you have to go before the media will actually consistently call you the racist that you are, right? And so would they have legitimized George Wallace? And it's like, what is the direction? But it, it's happening and it's going to happen. So that's gonna make him more acceptable, I think, in the, in, in the eyes of Republicans who will then come home. Um, so you have that. I do think that he will bring out um, some level of new voters. One of the things I didn't, re I didn't know until I was actually researching this just recently is that Perot brought out a lot of new voters in 92. There were 13 million more people voted in 92 than voted in 88. So there are some of these disaffected um, uh, folks in the middle who have been sitting out who will, I think, who may come out, which just gets back to the fundamental imperative around getting our people out. Right? I mean, I, my fundamental premise um, in the book, which is not just academics, been proved now, well, it's been proved four times over the past eight years, positively by Obama's wins and negatively in the 2010 and 2014 when people of color did not come out. There are more of us than there are of them. And so if we bring our people out, progressive people of color and progressive whites are the majority of people in the country and the majority of eligible voters in this country. And if we come out to be the actual voters, then we will defeat him. A corollary to that is, do you think that racism is greater today as evidenced by Donald Trump's support, or does his candidacy simply, candidacy simply make it more visible? And contrast that, if you will, I'm adding on to this question, with what President Obama has experienced and what that means in the context of uh, the work that needs to be done. I don't know if I would say it's greater that, if somebody asked me at one of the, um, when it's a book event we did in Denver, and I said, this is, uh, this is one of the most hopeful, optimistic books that I've read in a long time. And first I said, well, please put that on Amazon. Um, but then um, after that, I was saying, well, you have to, I mean, if you look at it in the sweep of, of, of history, right? Fannie Lou Hamer and the Mississippi, Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party had to storm the floor to get seated, to have an integrated delegation at the 1964 Democratic Convention. 1984, 1988, Jesse Jackson had uh, three and a half million votes, 400 delegates in 84, uh, 1,200 delegates, seven million votes in 1988, the highest runner up to that point in time. Um, and then we have elected and reelected an African-American president. So that is not inconsequential in terms of the flow and the sweep of this country, right? And you wanna go all the way back, right? But Jesse Jackson has this phrase when you, talking about how like hard things are right now and people complaining as well, it beats picking cotton, right? And so in terms of the flow and the sweep of where we're at, but I do believe that the intensity of this moment is tied to an inchoate feeling that a lot of these people feel, which I think is correct, that this is their last best chance to hold back the changes within the country. 
in that the demographic trend is so uh, profound and it's happening so rapidly, frankly. Like my first chapter is 51% and growing every day. Every single day between births, deaths, and legal immigration, 1,000 whites are added to the population and 7,000 people of color are added to the population. So the intensity of this moment is that they are feel like this is their chance to hold it back. And that if they can't and they don't, then I think that it's gonna be irreversible. And this notion about being able to win by appealing to white nativism and racial resentment is not even gonna be a, a logical or desired strategy the way it has been for the past 40 years. In your book, you do a very, I, I think, eloquent job of framing out why this matters. And you hearken back to your parents' experience of buying their first house. Can you talk a little bit about that experience and then link that to why you do what you do today? We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. Um, the story is that my parents moved to Cleveland Heights, Ohio in um, 1964, and it was an all-white neighborhood. My brother wound up being the first black student in that elementary school, and they could not buy their home. They were, the seller would not sell it to them because they were black. And so we had to get a white lawyer, Byron Krantz, to buy the house, deed it over to them. Um, and so that, and then and I only actually recently learned a lot of the details of this. Actually, I learned election night 2012. My dad was in town telling us more about the details of that. And a neighbor across the street who was not happy about it said, uh, called a meeting around with the other neighbors to say, what, you know, so what are we going to do about Byron Krantz? Are we going to string him up? And so this neighbor was very upset, called it in, the, in some kind of cosmic balancing, my brothers and I became best friends with his kids, actually, when we were growing up, actually. Um, but I think that so they were always, um, it was the milieu of the civil rights movement, right? So my parents took me to see Martin Luther King when I was three years old when he came to Cleveland. Um, there were all these biographies and Life Magazine, Look Magazine, about the civil rights movement around the house. So, and that's even come to the discussion and the talk about my, my mom and whatnot. So that was always part of the milieu, and um, which led me to, I mean, I read all the biographies of Martin Luther King in my elementary school um, library. So I think that, and then, you know, my grandfather was a minister. And so I think between these two different things of the religious tradition, the social justice tradition, that those have been deeply embedded within me. And so I think that really is the work that I've been trying to do in my life is to really be able to carry on that struggle, be able to advance that type of um, effort to make society more just. And I think I'm, I am, I can say I'm quite literally a child of the civil rights movement. And that has shaped my viewpoint, my outlook, um, my sense of both what's possible and well as what's necessary to do. 
Bernie Sanders has taken a great deal of flack about his dismissal of Southern states uh, in the primary process. Uh, but his analysis echoes the spending decisions of most campaigns. Uh, can you talk a bit about, let's say that you tomorrow become the czar of campaign finance and campaign funding for Democrats. We have anointed you and you have a billion dollar budget. How do you divide up the money? Give me categories and specifics. So the Democrats uh, in 2012 spent $2.7 billion at the, just at the federal You only level. get a billion. <laughs> so, all right, well, I tried. <laughs> um, so at a fundamental level, you need to look at uh, where do your votes come from? And so, and then your budget needs to reflect that. So 46% of the Democratic votes are uh, people of color. It may be more. The electorate was 29% uh, eligible voters, people of color, in 2012. It's going to be 31% this year. So it could be even closer to half of the voters. And then you have to allocate between mobilization of your supporters, and that, again, 80% of people of color tend to vote Democratic, and then persuasion of those who you, who you may need to persuade, if you need to persuade anybody. Um, so, uh, and then it's not cheap, so you have to invest in actually organize, and then the reality of the country, because there's so much uh, history of inequality and racial inequality, that people of color's lives are more difficult, and so that's a, the, the barriers to get out to vote, to participate in the electoral process are larger, um, and that happens when you have fewer resources. So, I don't know, two-thirds, one-third, two-thirds staffing, mobilization, people in the community. I, mean, I was at a national faith uh, uh, gathering a few weeks, a, few, a couple months ago, and I was thinking, why isn't there a civic engagement coordinator for every black church in the country? to make sure that every person in that church is registered to vote, that they know when the election is, that they're actually supported to actually get out to the polls. Um, so fundamentally, and I would even go further, I'll go 80-20, that if the premise is correct, that there's only 5% swing voters, period, and that the key to victory is turning our people out to vote, that I would put most of the money into an integrated plan around, which is largely staff-driven, of having human beings on the ground, in the neighborhoods, in the communities, and knocking on doors, doing calls, identifying people, getting them out to vote, reinforced with some media around letting people know when the election is, clarifying the issues, making sure people realize that the, what the stakes are and what the potential is at the election. Um, and then I would do some targeting that um, swing vote population, but I wouldn't go more than 20 25%. Can you talk a little bit about uh, my no other minority groups? So there's a great deal of conversation about the role that African Americans play in the Democratic Party. There's been uh, increasing attention to the role of Latinos. There's been much less attention to the Asian American uh, voting participation and Democratic side of politics. Uh, talk a little bit about the role that minorities across the board and then those specific groups, what role they play in winning this election. So... It's not, so on the one hand, historically everybody thinks about you know, minorities as uh, African-Americans. And so it's much more diverse now than it has been, but now the danger is that people are gonna forget about African-Americans. And so uh, more, in terms of Obama's voters, 
more of Obama's voters were African-American than were white men. And so when you think about how the money is being spent and who we're actually going after this election, that's like a profound reality. So that's a core piece. And then of the 79% who vote Democratic, African-Americans have been voted at the highest levels and most consistently the highest levels, um, frequently over 90%, um, even, even not for Obama. Um, so, but, so that's that. So, but Africans are not the largest uh, grouping of color within the country now, it's Latinos. Um, and so that is the next largest population, which is complicated in terms of the composition of it. I think that's something that people don't fully appreciate either. And it's something that um, we wrestled with in the, in the book around how do you both communicate and well, honor the history of each grouping and communicate it um, and have one book, and so there's like you could actually have 14 different groups, right? If you look at, you know, Mexican Americans, Puerto Ricans, Cubans, I think we were at Guatemalans at one point, you know. And so it turns out like how how do you really? And so we finally realized that that that's like a whole other book. Um, but in terms of Latino population, which is largely Mexican American, which is something that's not necessarily fully appreciated as well. So that's an important piece to understand the historical dimensions of that, right? I mean, my, I think. Uh, much of, of the Southwest of this country used to be Mexico. What's that? Somebody putting on a Facebook, they have these hats saying, um, make America Mexico again, right? <laughs> and so that, I thought that was interesting. <laughs> so, but then to understand the other Latino groups where they're at geographically are significant. So obviously Latinos are, uh, Cubans are significant in Florida, um, but the Cuban population has changed. There's a lot of younger Cubans, and even those who are older actually have a lot more Alisa Garcia Bedoya goes into a lot of this in her book, Latino Politics, of over tradition around labor and understanding relating to labor. And so there are aspects of the complexity of that community. Then you have a lot of Puerto Ricans moving to central Florida now. So that brings Florida's dynamics into play in terms of this election. So you have that whole reality. Then you have in terms of Asian Americans, and probably the single most surprising statistic to me, which opened up a whole door around US history, when I was researching the book, is that 74% of Asian American adults are foreign born. And I had to like reread that, but then it takes you back to 1965 to the Immigration and Naturalization Act, which, is sent, which actually takes you back to 1790, which was the first Immigration and Naturalization Act, which said that to, be a, to be a US citizen, you had to be a, a free white person. And that was good law explicitly in this country until 1952 and in practice until 1965. So it's really only since 1965 that Asians have been able to come to this country to actually become citizens. And Asians are the fastest growing population within the country, actually, currently. We're seeing it particularly in California. In terms of California's politics, there are more Asian Americans than there are African Americans. They're going to be play an increasingly critical role. I think John Chang declared today or yesterday for governor for 2018. Um, and have been voting increasingly progressive over the past 20 years and so. So, and I think uh, play strategic roles in particular places. I think what you have to understand the cultural realities and nuances and hopes and dreams of each of those communities in each of those areas to be able to effectively bring them into the fold. But if you can, then you can put together this coalition which can win in all these different places. Fantastic. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California radio program, and our guest today is Steve Phillips, civil rights attorney, senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, and New York Times bestselling author of Brown is the New White. 
we are discussing the current and future impact of changing demographics on American politics. I'm Stacey Abrams, House Minority Leader and State Representative in the Georgia General Assembly and your moderator for today's program. You can hear the Commonwealth Club programs on the radio and catch up with program videos on the club's YouTube channel. So you've allocated a billion dollars. Where does the ground staff come from? Where do you find these people? Is it the DNC? Is it the candidate? Is it somewhere else? How do you, how do you actually staff this program? So, oh, so linked to that is I would take 2% and put it into a permanent year-to-year -year fund that is, helps to uh, identify, recruit, and train activists and organizers uh, across the country. So there are, there are a lot of, uh, I remember when I was at um, Stanford back in the day, one of the black staff people said that, um, says every African-American staff person on this campus is underemployed. And that has always stuck with me, you know, for all these different years. So there's lots of talent, uh, which reminds me of the, um, Louis Gossett Jr. at this quote back in the 80s says that there's plenty of good roles for black actors. They're just being taken by white actors, right? And so there is a lot of talent that's actually out there that are people who are working on campaigns, who have been part of campaigns, who have been actually part of the mix, but they're not um, validated and elevated and like blessed or laid hands on as like the brilliant people or the people who actually should be, you know, looked to or in, and, in, and invested in. So there needs to be an inventory of who is within the different campaigns who, and who has done this work. Um, and that's a larger pool of people than people appreciate, but they're not um, respected or seen in that way. And so there are very few uh, people of color who are given the chance to run a statewide campaign. And it gets to be a cyclical situation. And so you haven't run it statewide campaign, so you can't run a statewide campaign. But how do you actually break into that? So no one's born running statewide campaigns, right? So at some point, somebody has to give, give it a chance. Um, so, but Cory Booker looked to Adiso Demisi, who had not run a statewide campaign, but was a talented political operative, and says, come run my U.S. Senate campaign, which he did, and Cory won, and that puts Adisu in that category now. There are a lot of Adisus out there. And so the work has to be done to identify, attract, recruit, and put those people in leadership positions. And then, so Hillary, to her credit, in Nevada, took Emmy Ruiz, who's a young Latina, and made her in charge of Nevada. Not the Latinos in Nevada, the whole state. And she won that state. So there's a lot of people like that who need to be identified, elevated, and put in charge of positions. And then you find the people who want to work on campaigns. A lot of people want to volunteer, they want to be involved, and they need to be trained and organized um, to be able to do that. And so that's some of the work that you've been doing. Maybe you should talk a little bit about that, because it's something I've tried to you know, be helpful to, is your whole you know, Blue Institute work and grooming some people. So. so the Blue Institute is a program that we launched in 2015 to exactly answer that issue, that if you look at campaigns across the South and Southwest, uh, especially in 2014, over and over again, when people were asked, do you have staff of color? The answer was, well, there's no one who can do that work. And when they did hire them, they were almost exclusively hired in field, uh, which, you know, for all of the reasons, especially as a black woman from the South, being told that someone's being put in the field just sometimes rubs you the wrong way. <laughs> but the, the reality was that there, there were very few who had the experience level to be trusted by 
those who are in charge of campaigns with the complexity of running a statewide race, of running a congressional race. And so with Steve's early investment and our ability to, to raise money from some other groups, we brought in 44 people of color, uh, half Latino, half African-American, uh, from the 16 southern and southwestern states. And we trained them over the course of a week and a half. They took training to become campaign managers, data directors, uh, communication directors, uh, to understand finance. And then what we were most impressed by and were most excited by, impressed is the wrong word, we were most excited by uh, the fact that we were able to work with Inclusive, the group that Steve referenced earlier, they came down and did resume training and we actually got organizations from across the country to come and do a job fair that week. And of the 44, 10 of them were hired by the end of the week and we now have a 78% placement rate of all of our young people. Um, we're very... And so some are working with the Bernie campaign, some are with Hillary, some are in congressional races. And now we have become one of the data banks. We get requests. Do you have any Blue Institute graduates that you can send to us? And that's been because of the work that you were willing to finance and the willingness to early on acknowledge the need to get this work done. And how much did that program cost? $152,000. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. When asked, 90% of seniors say they want to remain in their own homes as they age. Hello, I'm Charles Symes, owner of Allegra Home Care. Our caregivers have been serving seniors and the aging community for over 20 years. Allegra Home Care is the only Bay Area home care agency that is LGTB certified. Helping LGTB seniors stay at home is our passion. Please visit us at www.alegrecare.com. Allegra Home Care, serving your community. And they're publicly committed $170 million in progressive and democratic spending, the majority of which is going towards negative TV ads. So, and just to, to put a fine point on it, it took us almost six months to raise that 152000 We cannot raise the money right now. We have not been able to raise the money to replicate the program um, from the very people who have hired from within that program. Uh, because I think, I think to, to the point of Brown is the new white, while they find those who benefit it from the program appreciate the training, they don't necessarily know that it's necessary because which candidates would they go and work for next? And so it becomes that cyclical problem of if you don't have the experience, you can't have the job, but you can't have the job if you don't have the experience. But it's also an assumption that you should only work if you're working for a candidate of color. Uh, and that leads to my next question. There's a conversation about how to engage African-American, Latino, Asian-Americans, how to engage people of color on the operative side. Talk about the candidate side and what all of those groups, the DSCC, the DCCC, the DNC, the DLCC, the DGA need to be doing in terms of candidate recruitment. <laughs> Trying to get me in trouble, aren't you? <laughs> right. So, I mean, the clearest, most recent, most painful examples, which has happened in Maryland. So, the Maryland U.S. Senate race. In the history of the United States of America, there has been one African American woman in the U.S. Senate. 
Just one. Carol Mosley Braun in 1992. Um, Barbara Mikulski decided to step down in uh, Maryland. Donna Edwards, African-American congresswoman, uh, community activist, extremely progressive person, stepped forward to run. Also, Chris Van Hollen, a white uh, congressman, he wanted to run. So Harry Reid, like within hours, came out for Van Hollen, the very top Democrat in the U.S. Senate, put his weight and force in the path of this African-American woman. And then much of the Democratic Party establishment put its full force behind Van Hollen. Those are not the things you want to do if you want to lift up a person of color. And so you, the, this is the type of, it was, a, it, was a, uh, it was rare because it was so clear of a case study around how the institutional forces came behind and replicated the racial inequalities that we've actually had within the country. So work needs to be done to identify promising candidates, get behind them early, rally and marshal resources behind them, connect them up to networks of people around the country so that they, they get known more, um, they can actually be able to raise money more nationally in that regard, um, and then to do for them what has been traditionally done for the long string of white men who've been in these different positions. And so that is not what has been happening, and certainly not what has been happening at the level and the extent um, to which it needs to happen. Right. And so then in the, in the Maryland race, the Democratic Senate campaign committee was like, well, it's a primary. We can't get involved in the middle of a primary. But and they got involved in Pennsylvania in a primary. They're getting involved in uh, Florida in a primary. So when they want to, they can insert themselves. So somebody has to lift this up as a priority and shine a light on it and really force people to be able to actually put their money where their mouth is. Because right now, that's not what's happening. And we will have a significant opportunity in that regard over the next couple of months, which is a piece I just wrote um, past couple of days around the vice presidential pick. We've never had a vice president of color in the history of this country. That's not a calculation of talent. And clearly, uh, Dan Quayle put that to rest, right? <laughs> so, it's just an issue of who you, what you think the electorate will tolerate. And if you truly believe that there is an electorate which will get behind a candidate of color at the top of the ticket, or on the ticket, as we've seen in the past eight years, why wouldn't you choose one of the talented people of color to be on the vice presidential ticket? Uh, so because you handled that very controversial question so effectively, I'm now going to ask you to talk about organized labor. Um, what role? <laughs> what role do you see for organized labor in this election to get out the vote among people of color? And as a part of that, talk about the structure of organized labor, both as a financer of, but also as a uh, component of the challenges that you're talking about. Yeah. So I mean, labor has both the. Um, 
potential and the challenges that the rest of the progressive movement. And one of the things that's least appreciated from a political social change standpoint is that organized labor has probably the best uh, funding model in terms of being able to move resources in the progressive space. And there they have millions of people who pay money every single month that gets pooled to be able to put into the political sphere. So it's a powerful force in terms of what it can do and what it um, has the ability to do. Labor suffers from the same challenges around the having its leadership reflect both its membership as well as the country overall, right? The overwhelming majority of uh, labor leaders in the country um, you know, are still white and still don't necessarily reflect the, uh, the composition of the country. And so then that gets to this challenge around how and where do they focus their time, energy, and efforts. And I do think, frankly, that um, there is still too much focus, particularly from an electoral standpoint, around how do you change the minds and the viewpoints of uh, conservative white working class people. And I think we, we confuse trying to win them over in a short-term electoral campaign with limited time, energy, and resources with what the, what the policies of the country should be. And so that, and look at healthcare as a perfect example of that. So rather than spend all of our time and energy trying to change the minds of those people and spend massive amounts of millions of dollars showing them how they're voting against their interests, et cetera, et cetera, Let's go with those who want to vote with us, win the election, and then provide health care to everybody, including those who didn't even want to have it. That's right. So. <laughs> so this conversation has been fairly centered on candidates, although I think you, your 2% fund really talked about how do you create a sustainable long-term infrastructure. But let's talk about what the average progressive can do right now uh, to help make sure that brown is the new white becomes part of the narrative, uh, not just as a candidate issue, but as a structural change to how we operate. Well, I mean, I do say, you know, I in my the dedication of the book, the last the dedication, I said, all those working to make your organizations more reflective of the new American majority and effective at fighting for justice and equality, this book is for you. And so everybody... These challenges are so historic and so pervasive and so widespread, they play themselves out everywhere. And so we need every organization, whether it's the place you work or the place you volunteer or your local Democratic Party, um, to be lifting up these issues and demanding more both transparency and accountability around what we're actually, how we're structured and, and who gets promoted, who gets hired, who gets funded, who gets prioritized. That takes place throughout the society in a lots of different ways, and that we have a more um, democratized or flattened uh, work chart in our society, I guess, and so <clears throat> social media makes a lot of things possible in terms of being able to hold people accountable. And so getting the word out around who's doing well and who's not doing well within the whole social media space, um, I, I you know try to provide a set of questions in, chapter six of the book in terms of campaigns around the invest wisely piece to actually for all stakeholders. And so if you've given any money, you give them $10 to a campaign, you're a stakeholder, you can ask them, do you have a plan? 
are you going, how many, what's your uh, win number of votes that you need to win? How many of those come from people of color? Does your budget match that plan? Those are the kinds of questions and transparency and accountability which does not play itself out um, very often within political campaigns. And I think everybody can play a role in pushing um, that kind of a change within our democracy writ large. One of the, the questions that um, I think is sort of embedded in what you talk about is what role do people of color have in owning their role in the electorate? What aren't we doing, uh, which allows this larger superstructure to keep us in place? I mean, 46%, the Tea Party found a very effective way to make their voices heard, even though they are the minority of the Republican Party. Right. What's the responsibility of people of color? Right. Yeah, now that's, I've been increasingly coming to this as I've been thinking about in, you know, doing this book tour and talking to different people is that, I think this is the same people say, well, what would you do if you knew you couldn't fail? And I keep saying, well, what would you do if you knew you had a majority? And so both in terms of being bolder around our public policies and the things that we want to actually see society do, and we often shortchange our agenda because we fear it'll alienate people or it's not going to be able to get majority support. So we should be lifting up a much more bold, aggressive public policy vision within this country around ending, ending poverty. <clears throat> so so there's a lot of tinkering around the edges that could happen, but we, you know, we should have an ending poverty, healthcare for everybody, college should be free, Bernie is exactly right on that. And so that should be um, put forward as an agenda. But I also think it does then come to us as individuals, both in terms of um, how we uh, carry ourselves. So it's, there's, there's, we've been, um, I remember what I was saying as the, after the Obama election, people started to talk about people of color, et cetera. And it was like, you know, after you've been ignored for 30 or 40 years, it, you know, being listened to is disorienting, right? <laughs> and so, <laughs> But we're so used to being on the outside and having to protest and get the people in power to change and et cetera. But we can be the people in power. And so that's, I think, I think one of the, probably one of the main messages I'm trying to leave to people is that to start to think of ourselves that way, to really go from protest to power. And we saw some of that in um, the district attorney races in Chicago and in uh, Cleveland, where we went from protesting in the streets, these district attorneys who would not hold these police officers accountable for shooting these unarmed young black people, to then going to the polls and voting them out of office. <laughs> so we have that potential and that ability, and I think the other piece that then comes with that also is the responsibility to prepare ourselves to lead. And so if we really thought we were going to be leading cities and counties and states and the country, what would we be doing in terms of being uh, educating ourselves and also just elevating our game of the level of discipline and um, rigor and functioning that, and effectiveness that we all have in a day-to-day -day fashion, right? I mean, I, I mentioned in the book about how, you know, I'm sure that, you know, Harriet Tubman was bringing people on the Underground Railroad um, up from the South. People were probably wanting to sleep in, right? <laughs> they didn't want to get up, they didn't want to walk that long each day, right? But you got to do what you got to do to be able to get towards freedom. I mean, our opportunity is much is significantly large at this point in time. Well, I want to give my thanks uh, and our thanks to Steve Phillips, 
civil rights attorney, senior fellow at the Center for American Progress. Thank you for joining us for this week-to-week presentation of a recent Commonwealth Club program. I'm John Zipperer, host of Week to Week, and I invite you to find us online at commonwealthclub.org and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.